Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to you, you Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. Morning again. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, meditation, and the thoughts of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The McKenzie report on Austin came out a couple of weeks ago. Some of you may have seen it. We now live in the 11th largest city in the country, and since 2010, our city's GDP has doubled, while our population has grown by almost 40%. The average home price in Austin during the same time has risen by 170%. And we now have the highest congestion commuter costs, which means bad traffic, of all mid-sized cities in the United States. Second worst in Texas, trailing only Houston. And our population has doubled or is projected to double in the next 25 years. So imagine that. And maybe our homelessness too. It's increased 8% annually by 2015, giving us the highest rate of homelessness per capita in Texas, second only or equal with Houston in the number of homeless, though we have a fifth of their population. So why do we live here? <laughs> Plenty of reasons, even from the McKinsey report. One, it's a beautiful place. We have the most parks and public lands of any Texas city. It's also an incredibly educated populace. At least 50% of the population has a bachelor's degree or more. And also the job growth here continues to outpace our population growth. But why really do we live here? And maybe the simplest answer for most of us is because Austin is home. But what do we mean by home? What is home? And why do we long for it? Why are so many people moving here in search of it? Well, John 14 which Adam just read for you, tells us. And so three points this morning. Number one, our troubles. Number two, a place. And number three, the person. First of all, our troubles. It's not hard to see what the problem in this text is. It's stated very clearly here in the first words. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and they have troubled hearts. The, the Greek word is terasso, which means to be set in motion. It means stirred up. It means to be moved from here to here and back again. It means to be jerked around in all these various directions or to be shaken like a bartender making a drink where the result is that everything's mixed up. There's no order. There's no stability. There's no peace. And if we were to read the previous chapter 
in John chapter 13, we would understand why this is what's happening within their hearts. Because Jesus at the last supper tells them three things. Number one, he tells them that one of them, he doesn't specify who, one of them will betray him. And then Peter, their fearless leader, the rock, don't think Dwayne Johnson, but the rock is his nickname. He will deny Jesus. And if those two weren't enough, Jesus tells them that he is preparing to leave them. So of course their hearts are troubled. Intimate betrayal, personal failure, and then the loss of a loved one. Now we aren't in a secret upper room at a last supper with Jesus physically before us in the flesh, but we know these troubles. We know what it's like to be shaken by these very same experiences. Betrayal, intimate betrayal, failure, personal failure, loss of a loved one. So trouble like this is inescapable in this world. And so you know it, you have known it, you know it right now, some of you do, or you will know it in this world. And so we all need to see Jesus's answer to it and what it is that he says can calm or even cure the trouble heart in this world. And according to Jesus, it is a promise of a home beyond this world. That is what he speaks of immediately after mentioning these troubles. In verse two, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And then at the end of verse two, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. So nothing calms and cures the troubled heart more than that, than hearing from God, I have a place for you. Consider the significance of those words to these men in particular. All of them are going to suffer. Almost all of them are going to experience an incredible, horrible death. And Jesus knows it. They will be sawn in two. They'll be impaled on stakes and covered in pitch and lit on fire. Some of them will be tied to wild animals and pulled apart. The only one who won't die that way and will grow to be an old man will do so as a lonely prisoner in a penal colony on a remote island. And so Jesus is trying to comfort these men here. And he could have said anything. He could have talked about the final judgment when he'll return with all power and all authority to set the world right and to execute justice and to bring all wrongdoing and all wrongdoers into account, even those that will do these things to these men. He could have said that. He also could have talked about the Holy Spirit, whom he will send after he dies and rises and ascends to heaven, who he'll give to the believers so that they can have an experience of peace and strength to endure whatever suffering it is that they will encounter. I remember a number of years ago, I was driving here to church to lead the service, the funeral service for one of my dear friends, Andrew Halton, some of you knew him. And I was very nervous about the service because I was experiencing some PTSD symptoms from having been with him at his death just a few days earlier. I was apprehensive about breaking down and even being able to lead the service. And so I prayed the spirit would fill me and uphold me and calm me and enable me to do my job according to my role and according to my ordination. And as I was driving, I remember the very street in my neighborhood where I was at this moment in an inexplicable way, a peace and a calm and a steadiness washed over me. And I knew in that moment that I would be okay. I'd be fine for the most part to leave the service. And I was. And what was it? Well, it was the spirit. It was Jesus sending the spirit like Paul speaks of in Philippians 4, where he says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And many of you here know what I'm talking about. You know that experience. You've suffered far more greatly than I have, and you have known that God inexplicably but undeniably upheld you by his spirit through it. And so Jesus could have talked about that. In fact, in a couple of chapters, that's exactly what he'll talk about, but not here and not now. Here he talks about home. And point two, he talks about home as a place. 
to why are we as human beings so connected to place? Why have some of you been offered larger salaries and better benefits, but turned them down because it required you to move to another city? Some of you are thinking because the city was Houston. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Not, not really, but sort of. Why do, we, why do we travel home to the place where we grew up and why do we call it home? Why was homelessness the great cumulative curse on Adam and Eve in the garden after they fell into sin? Why was that the cumulative curse? Why do researchers say that one of the most destructive experiences on the human psyche is homelessness? Why do I love being from Oklahoma? Have you been to Oklahoma? I love being from there. I'm glad I don't live there, but I love being from there. Why? Why do I love the people in that place in, in strange and unique ways? Why are we so connected as humans to place? And part of it is because of our physicality. The word place here in verse two in, in Greek is tapas, uh, from which we get our English word topography. It's a word that emphasizes the physical and that we are inescapably physical. We're not exclusively physical. That's what modern secularism would insist, but no, we, we, we are physical. We can't escape our physicality. And so we're always going to be connected to places and even to things. But the Bible always says that we're both, that we're this psychosomatic unity. We're this union between the physical and the spiritual and irreducibly so. So to not be physical or to not be spiritual is to not be human. And our particular soul connected to, united to our particular body and together they make up who we are. They make us personal and individual. And Christianity, you need to know, uniquely sees us as such. Eastern philosophies and spiritualities, which are kind of washing over the West, they don't see us as that. They don't see us as individuals. They see us as being eventually absorbed after our deaths back into the singular ubiquitous life force, undifferentiated, and eventually amalgamated back into that life force like a drop of water into a cup and therefore not personal and not individual. But the Bible says, no, that is not what it means to be human. It says we're personal and we're individuals, and therefore we're also localized. To be a person means to have a locale. We have to be in a place. And to be human means we have to be in a place that is a home. And so what makes a place a home? It's not simply a house. That is part of it, but a home has to be a place where you belong. And so for those of us who are alive in the 1980s, we know that there was a TV show called Cheers. We also know the tagline from that, so all the old people together, where everyone knows your name. That's it. It's a place where you fit. It's a place where you belong. It's a place where you're known and love, a place that fits where the sights and the sounds and the smells, they fit fit somehow. They fit your eyes and your ears and your nostrils. There's no better description maybe than Marilyn Robinson's in her novel by the very same name, in her novel Home. It's the second in her Gilead series, which tells the story of these two families that are intertwined in all aspects of their lives, their incredible losses, as well as their eventual redemption. They're from Gilead, Iowa, which is a place probably a whole lot like Enid, Oklahoma, and that if you, didn't, if you weren't from there, you would never go there. But if you are from there, you're strangely always connected and drawn back there, regardless of what you've done, right or wrong, what's been done to you, what losses or, or failure or betrayal that you've known. So listen to this quote that she writes. It's beautiful. She says, how to announce the return of comfort and well-being except by cooking something fragrant. That is what my mother always did. After every calamity of any significance, she would fill the atmosphere of the house with the smell of cinnamon rolls or brownies. 
or with chicken and dumplings. It would mean this house has a soul that loves us all, no matter what. It would mean peace if they had fought and amnesty if they had been in trouble. It had meant you can come down to dinner now and no one will say a thing to bother you. And her father would offer the grace inevitable with minor variations, thanking the Lord for all the wonderful faces he saw around the table. Do you hear what she said? Did you hear how she described the house? The house as having a soul that loves. She emphasizes place, but she also animates the place and, and makes it inextricable from the people and the relationships and the spiritual and emotional realities that permeate that place. So home is a place where you fit and you belong and you know it. It's where supper is ready for you and waiting for you and where the food you love is served and where everyone rises to greet you when you walk in and you go over and you sit in your chair and you belong. And some of you have memories like that from childhood. Or maybe your memories of that are from college. You lived in a house with friends and, and friends who had depths of relationships with you that you've never known since or may never know again. And you so desperately want to get back there to recreate or re-experience it somehow. Or maybe it was the place that you lived before this, before moving to Austin. You had friends there and a beautiful house and maybe a garden and, and the weather there was better. There are no mosquitoes in the summer or ice storms in the winter and the traffic wasn't nearly as bad. And people didn't take dogs into every public place and treat them like human beings. And, <laughs> and maybe there were stricter gun laws there. Maybe there were fewer tattoos there or whatever it is. Maybe everyone didn't wear burnt orange there. Whatever it was, you loved that place. And you miss it and you want to go back. So listen, if you do, it will not be what you remember. Because your memories of it in your absence will be shaped by the longing for that home that Jesus speaks of here. And the two are not the same. The greatest home that you have ever known or will ever know in this world is not the same. It's not what Jesus speaks about here. It can only give you a taste of the home that he speaks of here. And you can go back and it can be good and maybe even it can be great, but it will not quell your longings for home because no home in this world can or will. There will always be an experience of homelessness that we have in this world, and no home will never be enough. I probably need to say that again for those of you who have moved here recently and have paid ungodly amounts of money for a house because that's what they cost now. Or maybe you immigrated from another country that was less prosperous and more dangerous. Or maybe you're building a home right now or a second home, a ranch house or a lake house or whatever it may be. Listen, it will not satisfy. It will not fully give you a taste of what Marilyn Robinson writes about. Not a full taste, a slight taste, a taste, yes, but it will not give you it fully. It will leave you hungering and thirsting for more because what you're hungering and thirsting for is what Jesus speaks about here in verse two, his father's house, which is a home beyond this world and beyond this life. And until you recognize that and accept that and set your heart on that place, you will never be satisfied here. You will always be disappointed with the city that you live in, the culture you live in, the neighborhood, the house, your friends, your neighbors, the weather, the traffic, the people. They will always disappoint you, and you will eventually crush them with the weight of expectations that they were never designed to bear, whatever it is. Because that is true of everything. The best marriages, the best careers, the best vacations, the best houses and cars and neighborhoods and schools, they all eventually, at the end, leave us restless 
and longing for something more. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, he said, our father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, hotels, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Heaven is our home. And it is a place. And someday heaven will come to earth. And then and only then, and there and only there, will you be satisfied and at rest, body and soul. Do not mistake the ends of this world for your home. And here's how. Here's how to not do that. Point three, particular person. Home, according to Jesus, here's a particular place, but it also is a particular place where a particular person is. That particular person is himself. He says, I go to my father's house. I will be there and I will bring you there. He says in verse three, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In one sense, that's the goal of everything with God. With everything in relationship to us in all creation and all redemption, his goal is that we might be with him. In fact, that's how the Bible ends. In Revelation 21, the very end of the scriptures, John, who writes that book, has this vision of heaven. And he says that he sees that the first earth has passed away. Heaven invades earth, transforms it, and the first earth has passed away. There's a new earth. He says in the sea, symbol of death and evil and all loss and brokenness, the sea is no more. And then here he hears God proclaim, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Three different times in one verse, he says, with them, with them, with them, because that's the goal of God in everything. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that we might be his people with him. That is his goal in everything that he does with us. Jesus says this that his father's house is our home. Jesus says this, and then Thomas, good old Thomas, what's his nickname? Doubting, not fair, but that's the way it is. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, much less the way to get there. And he says, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You know where I'm going and you know the way because you know me. I define the place and I am the way. In other words, he says, stick close to me. While I'm here with you physically still in this life, stick close to me. And then while I'm gone, by the Spirit, stick close to me by hanging on to my word and by hanging on to my people. Hang on to me by my word and by my people. And if you do so, you will be on the right way home to me. I am the way. And so what are you hanging on to? In the midst of all of your troubles, what are you hanging on to? And where are you headed? What is your way right now in the midst of your troubles? Because Jesus says that he is the way. And we don't see him physically now, but someday we will see him physically. The church calls that the visio Dei, the vision of God. It's also called it the beatific vision because that's what it does to us, beautifies us. Bea is a word that means to make happy, perfectly happy, content, at peace, at rest, ineffably joyful, just like God. Seeing God transforms us completely. Later in 1 John chapter 3, John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Those loved ones that you have lost who have gone to be with Jesus, I know that you long to see them. I promise you when you get there, they will not be the ones that you're looking for first and foremost that seeing them will not transform you utterly and completely in every aspect of your life. Seeing him will, because he is what makes home home. 
And verse six, of course, is the most troubling verse today in our culture, probably. I am the way. I'm the way to God. It used to be, it was meant by Jesus to be the most comforting thing that he could say to his followers, but now it gives his followers probably the most trouble, especially those who don't believe in or follow after Christ. His claim to uniqueness and exclusivity, him being the one true God and the way to God in through his death and resurrection, it's the most intolerant aspect of our faith because the word tolerance has changed. It used to mean the capacity to endure disagreement over differing beliefs and practices and maintain the relationship. Now, intolerant is an insistence that all beliefs, or being tolerant, is an insistence that all beliefs and practices and values and lifestyles are equal in truth and goodness. And Christianity cannot embrace that second definition because our faith stands or falls with the exclusivity of Christ as God and the way home to God. And C.S. Lewis understood this. He actually wrote this passage into one of his books in the Chronicles of Narnia in the Silver Chair. He tells about Jill entering a magical country on the top of a hill. And after wandering around for a while, she becomes very, very thirsty. And she encounters this lion who's lying between her and this crystal clear, beautiful, cool stream. She's terrified of the lion. And so She goes near, but then he asks her, are you thirsty? And she says, yes, I'm dying of thirst. And so he says, okay, well then come and drink. But she asked the lion if he might mind leaving while she does so. When he doesn't, she realizes and says she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. So then she asks the lion if he will promise to not do anything to her. And he says, I make no promises like that. And so she asks the lion if he ever eats girls. The line very matter-of-factly says, I've swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms. So then Jill says, well, I, I dare not come near. And the lion says, well, then you will die. She says, well, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. The lion replies, there is no other stream. So are you thirsty this morning in your soul? Is your heart troubled? There is one home that you seek. There is one home for you that you need. There's one place and one person who makes that home truly what it is. So believe in him and hang on to him. You eventually will see him and be completely transformed into your perfect self. And as you journey home to him, you will do the works that he did while he was on this earth. Do you see that he says that? That you will do the works that he did because he is with you. So do not be troubled. Calm your heart with the hope and the promise of home. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would impress upon us by your spirit everything that Jesus speaks of here. He speaks about our home with you, a place where he is that we may be with him also. Assure us of how desperately you desire our presence with you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.